Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 10, we read. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Remember, chapter 14 began with a plot by the religious leaders to betray Jesus. It was followed by a story of love and loyalty and sacrifice and adoration in the person of Mary as she brings the precious jar of costly ointment in order to minister to the Savior in verses 1 through 9. And now what follows is the story of Judas' treachery, his jealousy, intrigue, and betrayal in verses 10 through 11. And by the way, betrayal is a nasty subject. Betrayal is not something that happens among acquaintances or even strangers, but only among friends. And in the case of Judas, it moves from a deliberate commitment on the part of Judas in verse 10 to a delighted company of religious leaders who are glad to see him do it in verse 11. And so in verse 10, read with me, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him, that is Jesus, to them. What do we know about Judas Iscariot? We know that he was one of the twelve. That means he was hand-picked by Jesus. And by the way, in that hand-picking process, we're introduced to him in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And if you can remember all the way back to the beginning of our study in Mark's gospel, in verse 13 it says, And he, that is Jesus, he went up to a mountain, and he called to him, that is the Father, those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, not against him, but that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. Now, that's the irony. Judas was called by Jesus Trained by Jesus, equipped by Jesus, not for just any job, but for a particular job, the job of the ministry. And when you think about it, he was anointed to preach the gospel, not involve himself in intrigue, to have power to bring healing instead of division, to cast out demons, to confront Spiritual wickedness. Now, imagine if you could Facebook and friend Judas. And there you see his profile. Gifted administrator, eloquent speaker, trained financial advisor, leader. And then you have all of these people, all of his acquaintances who are confirming the fact that this man is a remarkable man. The list is then given of the apostles, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. And at the bottom of the list, as you read through the list, you come to verse 19 and you see Judas Iscariot, or 
Judea Ishkeriot in Hebrew, who also betrayed him. In Mark's gospel, when you mention Judas, you mention the betrayal. By the way, his name means praise. But he sort of ruined it for everyone afterwards, didn't he? How many people do you know name their child Judas? How many people name their child Jezebel? There's just certain names that are ruined forever. And by the way, Ishkariot or Iscariot isn't his last name. Most Bible teachers believe that it's a combination of words, ish, which means man, and kiriot, which means from kiriot, or there was a place called kiriot hetzron, which was south of Hebron, according to Joshua chapter 15, verse 25. So the Greek construction is really instructive at this point in the text. The exact words read Judas, Iscariot, the one. Of the twelve, the insertion, the one of the twelve speaks of priority and importance. Kim Philby, who was a high ranking British intelligence officer, who was also a double agent and a KGB operative, wrote to betray, you must first belong. And he belongs. He's with them. In order for real betrayal to take place, it has to be someone close, someone you love, someone you trust. By the way, he doesn't seem to manage to break into the inner circle with Peter, James and John. But he is chosen. By the way, is that possible? Is it possible to be chosen by Jesus And remain unsaved. You know, this is one of the big questions that I'm typically asked on my radio program. Was Judas saved? And sometimes the answers to questions really bother me. In in the American King James Version, in John chapter 6, verse 70, we read, Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. Does that give us the answer to our question in part? And the answer is going to unfold as we continue. By the way, typically people don't choose people to betray them. Husbands don't say, I think I'm going to pick that wife hoping that she'll be 85% loyal. Most husbands don't pick wives and wives don't pick husbands and parents don't pick children and children don't pick parents to betray them. Teachers don't pick students to betray them and students certainly don't pick teachers to betray them. Friendship and trust requires a certain amount of confidence. Some Bible teachers speculate that Judas may have been from Judea in John chapter 12, verse six. And if that's true, he would have been the only one of the motley crew who were not from the Galilee. Again, he must have been highly trusted since he served as the treasurer, according to John chapter 12, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And by the way, when someone is the treasurer in your family, when you hand over the checkbook to them, what does that usually mean? 
Do you get that's exactly right. Do you give your your checkbook to just anybody? Well, hopefully you don't. And now we know that when you look up the word betrayal in the dictionary, there not too far down the line is Judas. You know, Taylor Caldwell, the famous author, wrote, I love animals. They're not consciously cruel to one another. They never betray one another. And that's true. Dogs and cats are incapable of betrayal. Betrayal is different. Betrayal isn't just simply a misguided mistake. Betrayal isn't wrong-headed thinking and mistaken thinking. It's way further than that because it has to contain the element of friendship and trust and the expectation of loyalty. In Psalm 41 verse 9, the psalmist wrote, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, which means we sat at the same table, he's lifted up his heel against me. The immediate historical context is David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel, who turns on him at that point of weakness and difficulty and division. He turns his back on him and it becomes a type and a picture, a poetic and prophetic moment that speaks of the future son of David who would also experience a traitor. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, it says, The wounds I was given in the house of my friends. My granny's wisdom still stands the test of time. She would say the most amazing things. A double crosser is a person who borrows your pot and then you get to, it cooks your goose in it. That's what she used to say. It's true. There's another word that's closely related to betrayal. We touched on it earlier. It's the word abandon. Abandon is a word that speaks of a deep emotional difficulty when there is the expectation that someone should be there and that they should care. As a matter of fact, why do some people surrender to God and cherish God and value God? They love Jesus. They trust Jesus. They cling to Jesus. And then they abandon God. They abandon Jesus. They abandon the faith. They abandon their Bible. They abandon their church. They abandon their family. There's a story that speaks of it in Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verses 1 through 16 where it outlines the beginning of the separation of the kingdom after David and after Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. In Second Chronicles chapter 12 with Rehoboam it says, Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. The Living Bible, I think, paraphrases it well. It says, just when Rehoboam was at the height of his popularity and power, he abandoned the Lord and the people followed him in his sin. That's what seems to happen when people betray Jesus, betray the Lord, betray God. 
It's usually at the height of popularity and power and self-sufficiency because you'll hear someone say, I don't need God and I don't need Jesus and I don't need the Bible. I don't need all of that. You might need it. You might need that very special crutch. You might need that cultural underpinning, but not me. The Benedict Arnold of ancient Jewish history was Jeroboam the first, whose name, when mentioned, would send chills up and down the spine of Jewish children. Why? Because he was the one, when they would say his name, he was the one who made Israel to sin. It wasn't good enough that he betrayed the Lord. He felt compelled that you would also betray him. And by the way, that seems to be the case with modern day apostates, men and women who grow up in the church, who are educated in Christian seminaries and schools. And then all of a sudden they become what Dinesh D'Souza called Wounded theists, people like Michael Shermer, who grew up in Southern California, allegedly had an experience with God and Christ, but discovered that he was a skeptic and a critic. And it wasn't good enough for him to believe that the Bible wasn't true. And it wasn't good enough for him to believe that Jesus was a fraud. He felt compelled to make everybody else believe that as as well. So what are we to think of Judas? How is it that he came to Abandon the Lord. Was it jealousy? Was it ambition? Was it greed? Look at the text. He went to the chief priests to betray him to them. He initiated the betrayal. And by the way, that's what betrayers do. They initiate the betrayal. They're not manipulated into it. They make the choice. I'm shocked and surprised at, by how many people will defend Judas. It reminds me of the, of the lady who used to defend Satan. It would annoy the church to no end. The, finally, the preacher said to her, I, I believe you would have something nice to say about the devil. And she would say, you have to admire his commitment and ambition. Well, I think those who have sympathy for Satan... And for Judas are misguided. There's several reasons why liberal theologians and movie makers want to make Judas out to be the hero. Some have gone so far as to suggest that Judas betrayed Jesus in order to purchase a pardon for Jesus. Listen to their thinking. Their thinking is, I am going to betray Jesus so that I can raise enough money to post bail for him. Does that make sense to you? Some have suggested that the New Testament misrepresents Judas, that he's just acting in the best interest of the people and he's acting in the best interest of the country. But you would be wrong. There's a reason why Judas betrayed Jesus. There's a reason why he went to the chief priests. And the reason I'm going to suggest to you is because he thought that they were on the winning side of history. There's a reason why Benedict Arnold turned on George Washington and betrayed the Continental Congress and the Revolutionary War heroes because he felt with every fiber in his being that Britain was going to be on the right side of history. 
Judas wanted a position in the kingdom. He wanted power. He wanted prestige. He wanted position. And you might think, well, how is that different from the other apostles? I see in the Bible, Peter, James and John fighting amongst themselves over position and power and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But this is the difference in their hearts. Peter, James and John never gave up on Jesus, the person of Jesus. They thought that power, position and prestige would come from Jesus. Judas. Not so much. The other disciples may have been motivated by less than noble sentiments. But at least they had sentiments. Not Judas. He abandoned Jesus. He knew that the betrayal would result in his arrest and his execution. And we see that take place later when in a moment of regret and remorse, he brings back the blood money and throws it at their feet. There are many reasons and there are many excuses and rationalizations that people give in order to justify betrayal. But remember, that's exactly what it is. It is a rationalization, a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. And perhaps the biggest reason, the biggest reason that people betray God and betray Jesus and betray each other is because they underestimate the power of sin. They underestimate the power of grace and love and forgiveness and mercy, and they overestimate their personal goodness. Which brings us to another conclusion. That spiritual weaknesses, uh, spiritual strengths can sometimes become spiritual weaknesses. The very thing that you thought was your gift and your calling can become a dangerous problem. By the way, can the gift of administration lead to be a little overbearing where every dime and every dollar seems like it belongs to you? Can the gift of beauty and loveliness bring with it the temptation to sensuality? Can humility lead to a place where a person says, well, I'm so humble that I'm I'm never going to serve anyone or anything? You laugh at, at the ridiculousness of it, but isn't there people? Well, no, I'm I'm not the right person. I. No, I, I can't serve. No, uh, that isn't me. Can leadership become self-seeking? Can the gift of speaking lead to pride or to an exaggerated sense of self or celebrity? Where all of a sudden the thing that makes you gifted, the thing that gives you a, a unique and specific quality becomes a dangerous obsession. And so we see the foe's pleasure. Look at verse 11. And when they, the religious leaders, heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. I want to draw your attention to that expression. And when they, the religious leaders, heard it, they were glad. That means They were tickled pink. We have an idiomatic expression in our culture where something. Oh, goody. Oh, this is marvelous. This is great. Why? 
Remember what the religious leaders were. They were frustrated. And by the way, the right response to sin should always be sorrow and repentance. Even unbelievers, even wicked people know that betrayal is wrong. If you belong to a motorcycle gang, good idea or bad idea to betray the gang? It's a bad idea. Everybody knows it's a bad idea. The religious leaders were frustrated. Every head-to-head confrontation with Jesus found them on the wrong side of the moral stick. Imagine their astonishment because they have met Jesus and confronted Jesus and wound up wrong each and every time. Imagine how their astonishment turns to joy when one of Jesus' closest companions shows up and plots with them to entrap the Nazarene. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Imagine he shows up and they are so glad. By the way, do you think at this particular moment Judas could have asked for anything? How motivated are they to get rid of Jesus? Very motivated. What are they willing to invest to make sure that he's gone? I'm going to suggest anything, but the religious leaders must have sensed something. Fear or frustration or conflict or anxiety. Judas is there, but he's not all there. By the way, if they asked him the question, what is it that you want? Money. How much money? 30 pieces of silver. That's the cost of a slave on the open market. But one of the great, interesting things about biblical questions is we think we know the answer when in fact we don't know the answer. Because I'm going to suggest to you, you may not even know this. But Judas didn't set the price of the betrayal. The religious leaders did. Did you know that? Judas didn't say, give me 10 shekels or 20 shekels or 30 shekels. The religious leaders are the ones who negotiated the price of the betrayal. One of the fun things on my radio program is people love to try and trap me with questions. I've got a list that I've that I've been asked over the years. And let's just say. If you get three of these right, you get an A. If you get two right you get a B. If you get one out of the ten right, you're going to get a C. So let me ask you the question. How long did the Hundred Years' War last? Okay, that sounds like you're fairly confident. Number two, which country makes Panama hats? Number three, from which animal do we get Cat gut. Number four. In which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Number five. What is a camel's hair brush made of? Number six. The Canary Islands in the Pacific are named after what animal? Number seven. 
What was King George VI's first name? Number eight, what color is a purple finch? Number nine, where are, the Chinese, where are Chinese gooseberries from? And number ten, what is the color of the black box on a commercial airplane? Well, if you guessed 100 years, you're wrong. It's 116 years. If you guessed Panama hats were made in Panama, you would be wrong. The answer is Ecuador. From which animal do we get cat gut? Sheep and horses. In which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? In November. What is the camel's hair brush made of? Squirrel fur. The Canary Islands in the Pacific are named after dogs. King George VI's first name? Albert. Color of a purple finch? Crimson. Chinese gooseberries are from New Zealand. And what color is the color of the black box? Orange is right. And you're sitting there going, well, then why do they they have these stupid questions that seem to imply the answer? Welcome to my world. (laughs) Judas had a reputation of being shrewd with money. That's why they entrusted him with the checkbook. But something went horribly wrong that day. Judas made a gigantic financial mistake. He was swindled. Remember what the Bible says, what will a man give for his soul? Ten pieces, 20 pieces, 30 pieces of silver. By the way, a shekel in those days was a week's wage for a skilled laborer. The prophet Haggai in chapter 1 verse 6 speaks of placing your wages into a bag with holes. The idea is that you place your money and your security and your hopes in a particular place, hoping that you will be able to spend it for later. But it's sort of like trusting our government with our revenue. Something goes terribly, terribly wrong. Jesus is going to be handed over. And for the religious leaders, it's like Christmas Day. And Jesus is wrapped up in festive paper and a bright, bright ribbon. Warren Wiersbe writes, Mary gave her best in faith and love. Judas gave his worst in unbelief and hatred. He solved the problem of how the Jewish leaders could arrest Jesus without causing a riot at the feast. He sold his master for the price of a slave, Exodus 21-32. The basis act of treachery in all of history. Why do we see it so base? Because Jesus wasn't just simply an innocent man. He was the most innocent man who ever lived. There's a reason why your blood boils when you read about the death of an infant. There's a reason why rage wells up inside of you when you hear stories of child sexual murder and assault. Because in direct proportion to the heinousness of the crime sits the innocent person who's been victimized. And you wonder, you wonder how in the world it could take place. 
Husbands and wives don't knowingly pick people who will betray them. Governments do not knowingly pick agents who will betray them. Churches don't knowingly pick pastors who will betray them. But Judas was picked. How are we to think about that? Again, look at the text. Read the simple verses in verse 11. They and promised to give him money. We can make a case that jealousy was somehow linked to the heart of Judas. He never made it to the inner circle. We can make a case that ambition was also involved. We can make convincing arguments about many things. But the most convincing argument given in the scripture is that Judas was filled with greed. It says in Matthew chapter 26 verse 15. What will you give me and I will deliver him to you? Judas was a thief. He was consumed with greed and the love of money. And the, that fact is stressed above all others in the scripture. And by the way, greed is often the soil in which ambition is said to grow. And again, the tragedy is often that greed accompanies prosperity. <laughs> there was a farmer who was detained for questioning about an election scandal. Did you sell your vote? The attorney asked. No, sir, not me, the farmer protested. I voted for that fellow because I like him. Come now, threatened the attorney. I have evidence that he gave you $50 for a vote. And the farmer said, well, now it's plain common sense that when a fella gives you $50, you like him. Yeah. When someone gives you what you want, you like him. If they'll fill up the loneliness, the emptiness, the sorrow, the deprivation. Moses warned the people of God to remember God and not to forget God when they came into the land. In the handbook of Bible application, there's a market. There's a place marked greed. I want to quote it to you. Quote. Prosperity more than poverty can dull our spiritual vision because it tends to make us self-sufficient and eager to acquire still more of everything except God. Instead of leading to contentment, prosperity can just as easily lead to greed. The same thing can happen in our church once we become successful in terms of numbers and programs and buildings. We can easily become self-sufficient and less sensitive to our need for God. This leads us to concentrate on self-preservation rather than thankfulness and service to God. And guess what? That's what deprivation will do. It will begin to test you to see who you really are. So what is the cure for greed? Well, it may come as a shock that the answer is linked to humble reliance upon the Lord. It shouldn't shock us that in some way, giving and selflessness is always linked to the idea of how to defeat greed. But look what it says here. So he, that's Judas, sought 
how he might conveniently betray him. And that's the rub. Betrayal is never convenient. It's never convenient to walk out on your wife and your family. It's never convenient to leave your husband. It's never convenient to give up your country to foreign powers. It's never convenient. Something always seems to get in the way. There's always something that seems to get in the way at that particular moment. And by the way, the word translated conveniently in the Greek is very, very interesting. It's the Greek word eukairos. It means to seek a convenient opportunity. It means a suitable time or place. It's the right moment. The right time. But it always implies no big hurry. The Passover feast is not to be disrupted. It's going to be business as usual. We can afford to wait. Now imagine, imagine you go back in time and place and you see the circumstances. There is the high priest. There is the religious leaders. There is Judas. Can you imagine the conversation that took place? Let's try to. Don't worry. I know his every move. I know who his friends are. And I know who his enemies are. I'm with him wherever he goes. We should do this at night. We should do it at night when his friends are asleep. We should do it in the darkness so that we can avoid collateral damage. Can I get paid in advance? How much can you give me right now? Whatever conversation took place and whatever words were spoken, you know what they mean. It it spells premeditation. This isn't some hopeless circumstance that just fell into his lap. In order to really betray God, in order to betray Jesus, you have to sit there and cry and complain and wonder about your lot in life. You have to be the victim. But now Judas becomes like Satan. Just like Satan is on the prowl, seeking whom he may destroy, Judas is now put on the prowl. Judas is searching, he's seeking, he's searching, he's looking, he's waiting, he's searching, he's seeking, he's looking for exactly the right moment at exactly the right time. Judas doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. And what he wills to do is evil. And not just any evil. He is willing to betray an innocent man. Judas isn't simply content to reject Jesus and stop believing in Jesus. It's his mission to destroy Jesus. And that's what happens to people who abandon the faith and the Bible and leave the church. It's not good enough that they stop believing in Jesus and it's not good enough that they stop believing in the Bible. It's not good enough that they stop trusting Jesus. It's really, really important to them that you stop too. 
And so they plant the seeds of doubt and division. Some curse Jesus with a conscious, deliberate understanding. They know what they're saying and doing. Some teach and preach against his divine nature. Some teach and preach and reject the written revelation about him in the Bible. Some teach and preach against his active presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to change a person's life. They'll say, Jesus can't really forgive your sin and he doesn't really change your life. And you say... How do you know? And he says, because he didn't forgive me and he didn't change me. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 12, while I was with them. I protected them and I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture could be fulfilled. Doomed to destruction in fulfillment of the scripture? Does doomed to destruction to you sound like saved? Did Judas ever believe? Did he ever believe that Jesus was a prophet? Did he ever believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Did he ever believe the gospel? Did he ever see the miracles? Did, was he ever in the group? Did he ever have faith? My, my answer probably is going to shock you. He did believe. He did believe that Jesus was a prophet. He did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He did believe the gospel. He did see the miracles. He was in the group and he had faith. And you might be thinking, I have faith. But do you have saving faith? You see, faith is confidence, but is it the right kind of confidence in the right kind of person in the right kind of way? You see, Judas was a follower of Jesus, but Judas was never saved. He had faith, but it wasn't a saving faith. And you might know people who come to church, who read the Bible and who say words. But for whatever reason that I can't quite explain, they live their lives in the hopeless delusion that everything is fine inside of their heart. But they continue to live their life as if Jesus isn't really the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 24, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would have been better to him that he was never born. Can you imagine Jesus saying that about anybody? What? Yeah, it's better that he was never born. That he was never conceived, that he never was in his mother's uterus, that he was never born, that he wasn't a tiny, innocent baby living a life like babies live. It would have been better if he had never been born. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus, aren't you the one who's in charge of being born? Didn't God know that Judas would betray Jesus? Didn't God know that Jesus would die on the cross for sin? Yes, God knew Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. Was Judas an unwilling pawn in a predetermined game with no other choice other than to reject and betray Jesus in order to fulfill scripture? Jesus makes it clear 
that the choice Judas made was a real choice. With his very real mind and with his very real heart, he made a very real choice. One that would result in his damnation. Judas was given ample time to repent. Judas was exposed to Jesus and trained by Jesus and listened to Jesus and ate with Jesus and experienced the trials and triumphs with Jesus. By the way, was the sin of Judas the unforgivable sin? Could Judas have sought repentance instead of regret or remorse? Think about it. There were two disciples who betrayed Jesus on that fateful week. Peter denied knowing him. Judas betrayed him to the religious leaders. What's the difference? Peter returned and repented. Judas killed himself. By the way, repentance is not the same as regret or remorse. Sorrow that leads to death is not repentance. King Herod made a promise to his dancing daughter-in-law, Salome. He said, "If I'll give you anything you want up to half of the kingdom. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the Bible says something very interesting. It says that he regretted that he had ever made the offer. He was sorry. And then he killed John the Baptist. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. But then he killed himself. Sorrow that leads to the death of others and sorrow that leads to the death of yourself is not the same as repentance. Jesus makes it clear. A real choice was made. (laughs) My granny was an amazing woman. When I was a little boy. My parents would often drop me off at my grandmother's and my first memories are are her feeding me, taking care of me, patting me on the back. One day she said, beware of the man who's always patting you on the back. He might be finding a nice place where he can stick the knife in. You learn quickly. Judas allowed his strengths to become his weaknesses. This week, I read the story of Earl Pitts. You may not know that name. It's a story about what it takes to turn a person into a Judas. What motivates someone to betray deep-seated loyalties, unresolved anger, resentment, Greed. According to Evan Thomas in Newsweek, Pitts was raised on a farm in Missouri and was recognized as a future farmer of America. His parents said that they disciplined him firmly but fairly. He was a captain in the army. He regarded himself as a patriot. Even today, he is described by his wife as a good man. So what happened? Well, after getting his law degree and serving as a military police officer for six years, in 1983, Pitts realized a lifelong ambition. He went to work for the FBI. 
1987, he was assigned to the New York office. And part of his assignment and part of his duties were to isolate, identify KGB operatives, foreign spies who were coming into our country in order to undermine our country. And that's where the trouble began. He didn't see how he could afford to live in the Big Apple on his $25,000 salary. Thomas writes, quote, Morale in the office was poor and petty cheating on expense accounts was rampant, burdened with debt from student loans. Pitts had to ask his father for a loan. And he felt humiliated. Pitts later told a psychiatrist that he was overwhelmed with a sense of rage at the FBI. One morning, he came up with the idea That he would spy for the KGB. That way he could kill two birds with one stone. He could solve his money problem and then get back at his bosses. He told the psychiatrist, quote, I was shoved by the bureaucracy and so I shoved back. Over the next seven years, Pitts worked as a Soviet spy. And he received for his services $224,000. And when he was finally caught and convicted, the judge sentenced him to 27 years in prison. By the way, the Bureau, when they brought him to trial, only asked for 20 years in prison. And the judge gave him 27. As a matter of fact, at his sentencing, the judge asked him point blank. Why did you become a traitor? Earl Pitts replied, quote, I gave in to an unreasonable anger, unquote. Can you imagine the people who are standing before the judgment seat of God and they'll say, why did you betray Jesus? And they say, I gave in to an unreasonable demand for pleasure, for money, for greed, for this or that. I needed this. I needed that. I needed this. I needed that. U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis told Pitts, his crimes were especially severe and said Pitts had yet to fully apologize. The judge said to him, you betrayed your country. You betrayed your government. You betrayed every single fellow worker. You betrayed all of us. And then glaring at the defendant, the judge said, every time you pass by Arlington National Cemetery, Every name on every marker, when you go by the Vietnam Memorial, every name inscribed in stone, you betrayed them. When I read the story, I couldn't help but think of the tens of thousands of saints who have proceeded in this thing called Christianity. Who have lived their lives in dedication and sacrifice, in love and loyalty. By the way, Pitt's plea bargain required him to submit to FBI debriefings. And during one of the debriefings in 1997, Pitt stated that he wasn't aware of any additional spies within the FBI. But he was suspicious of one man named Robert Hansen. By the way, the FBI didn't act on Pitt's warning. And the suspicions didn't come to fruition until 2001. And Robert Hansen's betrayal 
wound up compromising agents all over the world and resulted in their death. Robert Hansen at this very moment is serving his sentence at a federal correctional institution in Colorado. Pitts, he's in a federal correctional institute in Ashland, Kentucky. Judas, there's a special place for Judas. There's a reason why Jesus said, it would have been so much better for you had you never been born. Why? Because choices matter. Decisions matter. We've been given this great and wonderful opportunity that we can turn from sin and that we can turn to the Savior. That we can, by grace and mercy through faith, appropriate love and forgiveness and acceptance and a future. And it can just as easily be dismissed. The next time a person says to you, I tried Christianity and it failed me. You need to be able to say to them, Christianity has been tried, but it's never been found wanting. Jesus is always the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. He can save you. And he will save you. Will you let him? Will you turn from your sin? Will you embrace the Savior? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Who knows but that this message will find its way to federal correctional institutions in Ashland, Kentucky. Or Canyon City, Colorado. Heavenly Father, I pray that for that person who is wondering if their betrayal, if their guilt, if their shame is so deep and so black and so dark that it can never be forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that if they will turn from their sin and that they'll turn to the Savior, that there is grace There is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is hope. In Jesus' name, amen.